So tell us, Dan, how is this book doing? I've no idea. I've no idea. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't received any figures from anywhere. So I'm uh, just got my fingers crossed. It's a hope and a prayer, really. Well, it's a very nice book. Very reasonable as well. It's a reasonable price and the cover is marvellous. I think the cover would sell it. Don Milligan, The Embrace of Capital, Capitalism from the Inside. Yeah, so tell us about the image. Well, the image is a, is a, a young woman who's looked peering through a pair of spanners. And it rather amused me when I saw it because uh, I thought, oh, it's Rosie the Riveter for today. She doesn't know what to do with the spanners. So, so she's looking through them. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was a marvellous kind of comment on deindustrialization, And also that I was pleased that I, when I found the image, the uh, uh, the publishers bought it for me so they could use it on the cover. Yeah, so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a work of history. It's a work of memoir as well, I think. It is, yes, it is. It's both. I mean, I inserted lots of uh, personal... Uh, experiences as illustrations really of the of the general argument that if you've lived an entire life in the political margins <laughs> selling papers that nobody wants actually wants <laughs> so this is you were you're telling us about your uh, sort of list as you're telling us about your background in various left-wing parties over the years indeed yeah and and uh, <laughs> it, it's unconscionable the the length of time that it, it took to realize that one was on a hiding to nothing that this none of this was going to work well that's what that's what it's about as well because it's, it's a book about the left it's a book yeah. about the history of left-wing uh, politics it's called the embrace of capital that's one of the things that interests me about it because you're i think that everyone who calls himself on the left should read it because you identify a particular problem <laughs> you identify a lot of problems for the left, actually. In it. But one of them, I think the principal one, is that they misunderstand the structure of commercial society. I think that's right. I think the, they misunderstand. And it, the, this began, this misunderstanding, this fu fundamental misunderstanding began in the 1950s. That as industrial workers got richer, by the end of the 50s, I mean, I remember myself when, when oranges and other fruits uh, became routine, in the house i mean they used to be only for christmas but by the end of the 50s they were every week uh luxuries like fruit and so on but the the left were very disturbed by the idea of the avalanche of uh, white goods of refrigerators and televisions entering working class homes and and that this there was a sense in which this was undermining the traditional collectivity or what raymond williams called common sharing <laughs> right, right. And of course, nobody wanted bloody common sharing. They wanted a washing machine. They wanted a cool fridge and higher purchase. That's right. And so these upper middle class uh, intellectuals uh, and academics were dismayed by the, by the destruction of what they imagined the working class should be. I'm interested in a lot of the book, but I'm interested in the more philosophical part of it as well. It's a book that's informed by Marx, I think. Indeed, of course. So let's start with the top. It's the embrace of capital. And I presume by embrace you mean the working class who are embracing capital and capitalism. But when you say the word capital... I think we're embraced by capital. What is that? Could you speak to that a little bit? Or? I think it, it, it means that capitalist society is, is a world unto itself. What you must understand is it's not simply a mode of production. It's a mode of life. Now, in a formal sense, most socialists, most people on the left would accept it's a mode of life as well as a mode of production. But the, the mode of life would always get short shrift, really. The tendency to simply see it as an economic system, despite everything that Gramsci had to say, despite everything that marvellous uh, Marxist historians uh, have to say, like Braudel or, or, you know, a whole raft of people, E.P. Thompson, you know, etc. Despite being informed by any of this tradition, it never really informed the, the view that capitalism was simply an economic system that had to be overthrown. So it's cultural. So capital is culture in addition to the economic side of things. That's why I focus a lot on luxury consumption and the idea of advertising and so on. Because you have to understand that capitalism 
arose on Western capitalism arose on the basis of trade in luxury goods in Chinese porcelain and spices from the Far East, right? So it was entirely based on luxury. The transactions of, were based on luxury. Uh, then moving on to the, the, the trade in human beings in terms of chattel slavery and so on. So what's really clear about the, the, the development of the system is there was no separation between culture and the economy. It completely is, they inform each other to the most extraordinary degree. So those marvellous blue tiles from Delft or any of any of those things from Holland, you know, so Holland becomes the first capitalist, the first country that based on, on trade, really. I mean, of course, earlier uh, uh, situations like Venice and so on were, were based on trade too. But Holland and England were the first countries that were completely uh, engaged and dominated uh, by trade, by commerce, what Adam Smith calls commercial society, which I've used inter interchangeably throughout the book with capitalism, because I think most readers will understand commercial society describing the world they live in much better than, than formal words like capitalism or whatever. This is what the left missed then. That was one of the big things that left-wing politicians, left-wing thinkers, left-wing militant groups do not pick up on. They pick up, they miss. I think, I think they, yes, they do. And I think that the, 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 the error lies in the fact of the elaboration of, of certain theories, which reality then has to be shoehorned into. So you shoehorn, the, you try, attempt to shoehorn the working class into, into the theory. So that the fact that most struggles are not working class struggles, they're sections of the working class or sections of the lower middle class or admixtures of all this uh, is neither here nor there. The left will say objectively a movement is either reactionary or bourgeois or middle or working class. Right. And so there's constantly the tendency to shoehorn reality into the theoretical structure. And that undermines one's understanding of it that's why i think that marx is so brilliant and so important we should learn from marx because marx spent his time trying to understand the society he lived in <laughs> right but he looked very closely at it he tried to understand how it worked and, and the left doesn't do that yeah so it's, that's one of the things that always distinguishes your work on is uh, critique of the left from the left or a critique of the left from a marxist perspective is there things in marx do you think which easily give themselves to that type of abstraction so i don't know things like false consciousness alienation uh, the critique of commodity fetishism those like you know core marxist concepts is there something about them that allows them to be reified i think i think that one of the interesting things is because marx only published one book uh, uh, <laughs> right, right, the first volume of Capital. The rest of Marx's oeuvre is uh, spatchcocked together by Engels and a whole lot of other people over the over the years. So Engels is, <laughs> I mean, he was a good chap, uh, and he did all kinds of and, and wrote all kinds of important things. But he's also a, a villain in the sense that a number of things um, uh, in his oeuvre simplifies things and vulgarizes uh things that marx might have said or done so i'm not a, i'm not a, an expert on marx's writing but i would i would say that the thing that really impresses me about marx is he does try to understand what's happening and he he's entirely wrong for instance him and engels were wrong in the manifesto in the communist manifesto in 1848 because they they envisage class relations becoming simpler uh two great classes would confront each other and the working class would be, be become society would become more and more proletarianized and in fact the 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 manifesto is entirely wrong about that because as the system developed as capitalism developed uh in the in the 19th century uh, the, the, the complexity of the class relations and the complexity of the working class, for instance, that becomes, after 1867, half the working class had the vote. Working class men had the vote. Another half didn't have the vote, quite apart from women, who none of them had the vote. But then there were masses and masses of, of uh, labouring working men who lived an entirely different life 
from those who had the, had the vote, who were who were more skilled and more able to pay the ten pounds per per annum rent that that gave them the vote. When you talk about working class, and I think that's one of the common themes throughout the book, is that the left and leftists misidentify working class concerns, and they characterize or mischaracterize what being a working person is actually like what's it about they have an imaginary working class so for your and this is one of the things you talk about in the book it's the working class is not something undifferentiated it's not something like it's not a homogenous blob it's full of a variety of different experiences vastly different and also the other thing is to understand its historical development because of course the working class is a product of capital (laughs) not of its own consciousness marx would have told us uh, as capital changes the working class changes so we've got different working classes the marvelous book by e.p thompson on the the making of the english working class is brilliant book about about the emergence of the working class in its earliest phase of uh, industrialization but it finishes in 1832 i mean the working class is is something quite different by 1850 because the whole structure of the society had altered was shifting under the ground by the great the second great reform act of 1867 when you know a vast number of workers uh, working class men got the vote and became citizens you're not you're not in the world of E.P. Thompson and the making of the English worker at all and again it changes by the uh, the mass uh, trade unionism of, of labouring people unskilled workers at the end of the 19th century you're not in the world of the 1840s or the 1850s again it changes and similarly the changes in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s absolutely transformed the working class again. And no doubt um, artificial intelligence and robotics and so on are going to change the working class again. I think Marx himself kind of recognises, doesn't he? When the earlier Marx, it's kind of had a very simplistic three-class structure. You've got sort of your bourgeoisie, you've got your proletariat, and you've got uh, the elites. And even he, you know, after he talked about the spectre of haunting Europe, of uh, the spectre of capitalism, that's something that he himself revised. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the other thing about Marx is to understand, even in a document like the, the, the Manifesto of 1848, the brilliant observation uh, of, of what we would now call globalisation, Marx did understand the, the, the overall trajectory of the system. Uh, he really did understand it. I've often got students to look at, uh, at the manifesto from the point of view of globalisation and see what the old, the old fellow had to say about it. In a more biographical, in terms of the lived experience of your own background, you're from a working class background. Yeah. You talk about that, you talk about your mum who came from Ireland, you talk about your father, your father was... A labourer, is that right? He was a labourer, and then he became a, a bench fitter. So he was a skilled man in a factory. One of the one of the moments that you started talking about in the book, the, the book sets off with your discussion of the uh, royal wedding of the Lady Spencer. Lady Diana. Lady Diana herself, and uh, now King Charles. That's right. Uh, uh, yeah, so we were recording this the day after the royal funeral, so the listeners know how it's, it's very present to our mind. But one of the things... I thought it was an interesting little vignette to begin begin the book is that you are a confirmed communist and a Republican. Um, you're also a Democrat, I think, uh, last I checked. But you also said you are enchanted by the spectacle. Now, before you came on, you had you did a full marathon yesterday. You watched the whole royal funeral, mm, right? Yes. And I think that speaks to the themes of the book. And it seems to speak of working class life and experience is very diverse and diffuse and changes... However, they tend to like the monarch, royal life and what it represents. I know you are into it because of embroidery, as you said. But uh, yes, I mean, the, 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 the truth of the matter is the, the lessons of the, the left, what the left bangs on about is very dismal and mis- miserable. You know, the left's all telling you how it's all going to go wrong, how everything is, is, is dreadful and the poor are having a, being shafted and all the rest of it. Now, the working class knows full well that the poor are being shafted they don't need the left to tell them that <laughs> they don't need the left to tell them that capitalism is not going to uh, give them a world of peace and prosperity the royal spectacle lady diana or whatever partly it's to do, i'm sure that's partly it's, it's not irrelevant that i'm a homosexual and and i've spent time as a window dresser so 
So eight meters of of of, of English silk down the steps of St Paul's from the, from Lady Di's wedding dress. It, it was spectacular, marvelous as far as I was concerned. And my comrades in the Revolutionary Communist Party looked at me with absolute horror when, when I was talking about this. And I think that there's an idea about what the political consequences or what it kind of politically represents in some sense. They they like the whole business, the whole fun of the the whole thing is it takes them out of ordinary life they also express things like it's a moment of history you know all that kind of thing so it gives it gives people a certain kind of significance now marxists and marxism many marxists will go on and on about alienation and people being alienated because the they, people are indeed alienated and somehow something like an institution like the monarchy has got some connection with their alienation like advertising advertising is marvelous when you when you're looking at some marvelous beautiful bloke in the wonderful shirt <laughs> and there he is on the advertising hoarding or in the in the on the tv or what you know you're not going to look as good as him in the shirt but on the other hand you'll give it a go the the spectacle of capitalist society is just marvelous so that's an aspirational thing then, isn't it? It allows you to transcend your existing material yes. conditions. Everybody from Raymond Williams to John Lennon was, was, was prepared to say that, that advertising is lies and, you know, you think you're clever and classless and free. And uh, you, you, you recite that, don't you? you say, yeah. John Lennon, what's the famous line? It keeps you doped with religion, sex, sex and TV. I yeah. said, but the working class. Still fucking peasants as far as I can see, says the song. So this is the same line as, as Raymond Williams and these more intellectual leftist uh, critics who, who were constantly saying that the working class are, are bludgeoned by advertising and don't understand. Actually, the working class are well aware that life is better with a washing machine than without. They are perfectly, perfectly love the idea of getting into debt to go to a Greek island for 10 days and take the kids and have a marvellous time. Somehow, the leftist intelligentsia doesn't. The leftist intelligentsia wants to tell you it's all nonsense. That also speaks to why working class folk embrace capital, the way you put it. It's because capital has a levelling effect which is, you know, that Marx says that, doesn't he? And I think it's the, the Communist Manifesto. It's sort of the universal asset, you know? Yeah. But that means it, it undermines hierarchy, if not guaranteeing opportunity, at least, where capital can allow people to be yeah, aspirational you can, and You can so be on. who you like, you know. And we know that you can't actually be who you like, but, it, but there's the prospect of being who you... You can look gorgeous and glorious and all the rest of it and you can see what disaster this is because inappropriate people take up the wrong fashions and they look like awful but, but the fact, fact of the matter is that people engage with the whole enterprise you see young women tottering on stilts on a Saturday night in Manchester uh, in hardly any clothes <laughs> and they think they look marvellous well good luck to them you know they think they look marvellous they're not going to take the slightest bit of notice of the socialist worker or anything else telling them that it's all miserable because they don't believe it. Gotcha. Now, one of the other things that the left, I think, does not get about the working class, you claim, is the question of exploitation. In some sense, those lasses who wear very little clothes and are on uh, very high heel shoes, the idea would be that, that is, they are a victim of false consciousness or something like yeah. that. Or uh, in, in, in sort of more everyday sense, you hear it quite a lot. You sort of heard it a lot about the, the Brexit vote from leftists. Oh, indeed, yeah. You know, there was the idea they voted against their interests. Yeah. So, and it's very... Same as John Lennon, it's a very snooty attitude, that. Well, yeah, I mean, the you know, the well, as I say, the well-heeled literary critic, Raymond Williams, and the millionaire musician, John Lennon, you know, had fine ideas about all this. But, of course, they were separated in some way or another, whatever their origins were, from what's going on, what working people's experience. They want to own their house or flat. And if they can't own their house or flat, they want defensible rights for, for their tenancies and so on. So they believe in the rule of law. 
we will talk about that actually because you, you spend a lot of time talking about that yeah. and the nature of contracts and I think that was really interesting the question of exploitation is I, I want to talk a little bit about your biographical account here is uh, the unhappiness of workers that's the thought right? yeah. so you tell the story of working in an office in Stockport and being reprimanded unjustly because some of your students were <laughs> claiming excessive uh, <laughs> expenses uh, and the subsequent job you talked about was with strict observant Muslims and some of your colleagues basically saying I shouldn't be there because I was homosexual precisely yeah and that uh, basically thought you should be sacked because of your sexuality I think the thing that the left is missing that you're claiming is that the unhappiness stems from treatment not so much from the inequality of the workplace because kind of the idea is that we know everyone who anyone who's any job knows that the boss probably has got to have a better car than you or a nicer house yeah and also they know they they also know the boss better not go broke because if he goes broke you'll be out of a job Right, yeah, yeah, you say that as well, isn't it? Because yeah. you, you want your enterprise to be successful. You want yeah. your enterprise to be <laughs> profitable. At least keep you in work. Yeah, so that then is, that. Well, I suppose that's what I'm, I'm, I'm wondering. One of the things we do is we're okay. We don't accept iniquity, do we, uh, workers? Uh, no, no. In the broad sense, we... Fairness is, is, is a key value uh, in the society and among, among uh, most working people. You know, they they believe in fairness. They believe in people being treated fairly. That doesn't mean to say they don't, the abolition of inequality, because they, they can accept levels of inequality at the same time as, as they're concerned for fairness. And, you know, in most jobs, I think I argue that in most jobs, I've never heard anyone complain about being exploited. They always complain about, about being badly treated by the boss or the supervisors or whatever. And, and disregarded, I think. The, the most important thing is people feel disregarded in the workplace. And this causes immense bitterness and, and can dominate one's life feel disregarded and i suppose the idea is that for the left then is that exploitation comes at the hands of i don't know the boss class or something like that well it's it's also abstract because of course the truth of the matter is half the working class work for small business they work for in small units and they know the boss right they might be married to the boss's brother you know it's quite a complicated set of relationships it's not some faceless capitalist class that they work for they work for 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 small employers and even in the other half of the working class works for giant companies and so on but even there the, the their experience of the giant company is is the supervisor the local manager uh, all the all that so the personal relations are, are prime well, I, I think it's an interesting one because you're not saying that working class folk don't have a sense of fairness or a kind of that sort of vernacular absolutely and also egalitarianism that, perhaps and also they're they're perfectly prepared to have a go at the bosses in in all sorts of situations. I mean, I I describe a situation when I was a young labourer and, uh, and I was horrified as I was ordered down to clear this pipe junction in this trench. Yes, this is in the book, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, to clear it of mud and stuff. But it was half. It was full of water. This trench, and I. <laughs> expostulated I said I can't, can't go down there it's full of water and the tradesmen the, all the skilled men on the site all gathered around and were hooting with laughter because they could see that I was a, a novice and hopeless labourer uh, but they, they sided with me <laughs> against against the site manager and said no you'll have to get the lad the lad's right you'll have to get a pump and it's a kind of it, their delight in, in getting one over on the <laughs> <laughs> by supporting me. But there's it? a deeper point there, isn't there, though? There was, it's, t- it's more about sort of a spontaneous egalitarianism that where they go, Absolutely. actually, we can improve our conditions here as well because <laughs> right. if young Don here gets a ladder or a pump, then we get one as well. well yeah, I think Marx somewhere describes, uh, you know, workers levering out bases for themselves uh, in the course of the working day, which is, of course, true and continues to be true. So the class struggle in, the, in that sense, the struggle of workers... It's perpetual, and and all the time, people are are nibbling here and nibbling there and elbowing here and elbowing there and in all sorts of complicated ways. So the 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 left only recognises it if there's a strike, <laughs> and they can have a picket, <laughs> and, uh, and of course that's become 
less and less uh, an option as the structure of industry has changed and it only really now exists in the in the on the railways and in the public sector uh, basically trade unionism is is decayed everywhere else really and so what happens everywhere else well everywhere the workers don't just give in all the time they they resist in all sorts of ways and in fact contracts of employment have improved over the years all sorts of things have improved health and safety uh, all sorts of things have improved because of the actions of workers not trade unions necessarily but just well it speaks to the question of egalitarianism because that's one of the things that sort of left-wing thinking socialist thinking prides itself on is we do equality better than you mm. you know well and even that's a negative way of putting it the strong belief in sort of a, the best society is a more equal and fairer society where there's i don't know redistribution of income in some way and mm. which gives everybody opportunity now one of the interesting things in the book that you talk about is how and this is one of the things i think that you think a lot of leftists miss is that the question of equality is a lot more based on the rule of law and contracts than necessarily, I don't say like a, a government mandated equality of rights or something like that. So there seems to be an elision between uh, civil rights in leftist thinking. So be- equality before the law, access to jobs, housing, education, public utilities, healthcare, water, and so on. Maybe I'm getting this wrong, Don, but I think the idea is that the left confuse that with equality of outcome or equality of uh, condition. So, you know, yes. the left is always about we need to get society right, the social determinants of an individual. Yeah. People take drugs because they are, grew up in poverty or something like that. And the reason, the reason that this confusion occurs is because the left never wants to give uh, the, uh, the bourgeoisie the credit for anything. They don't understand that actually the working class became citizens because of the struggle of the bourgeoisie within bourgeois society. Intellectuals, right. uh, journalists, writers, novelists, all kinds of people were engaged in trying to, uh, trying to ameliorate the awful conditions of the, uh, of the working poor. And in fact, this had an effect. This process of amelioration had an effect throughout the 19th century well into the into the 20th century things have improved and they haven't just improved because of push and and shove certainly the second great reform act of 1867 was brought about by a combination of pressures by uh, the liberal intelligentsia by all kinds of things and the working class and rioting (laughs) <laughs> the Hyde Park riots of 1866 were terrifying for the ruling class. I mean, the, the whole of Mayfair was under, under siege. They had to bring out the soldiers and the police and so on. And the crowds wouldn't disperse for about three days, I think I'm right in saying. So, in fact, the fear of the working class, uh, the fear of the, of the masses... And the, the the nightmare of the Irish in their cellars, who were, uh, uh, as, as I say in the book, a lot closer uh, than the heart of darkness, right? <laughs> was actually this was a danger to society. So the bourgeoisie, in a combination of one, you know, of attempting to ameliorate conditions and all the rest of it, and sheer terror and fear of cholera and all kinds of things created a situation in which the working class over uh, the period 1867 to uh, uh, 1928 got the vote, became citizens. And and so that's a problem for the left. The problem for the left is recognising the the success of, of, of of the bourgeoisie in creating bourgeois democracy. They don't want to give it any credit so they constantly are trying to say it's not real you know lenin described uh, bourgeois parliaments as the cloak of bourgeois dictatorship they're, they're trying to suggest it's not real because of course the levers of most things in the society are controlled by property owners and and that's what capitalism is is about but they try to suggest that the social texture the social rights that people have are not real and at the core of that is the question of contracts. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and contracts are, you say, almost sacred and inviolable. 
and people believe in them very much because people want don't want their house to be burgled or they don't want a third of the a third of the of the population or two-thirds of the population i should say own their own house you know through mortgages or whatever but they own their own house and they deal with lawyers and they deal with you know and they deal with the with the property registry and so so they they got a great deal you know they're not separate from the capitalist class in hating private property they say they don't make a distinction between between capital which we know is a is a kind of property that can employ people and consumption goods so they they don't they want to protect their house and their furniture and their soft furnishings and they want the police to do that you know people are policing by consent well if you if you read uh, peel's uh, uh pamphlet on that or his speech on that policing by consent you can see he was trying to deal with a situation in which there were militia and uh, local militia who were utterly unreliable half of them drunk most of the time and that's why the, the the terrible massacre happened at, at peterloo in manchester in 199 in in 20 in 1819 and so the 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 as the the idea of police uh, formalized policing comes into existence Peel talks about policing by consent and the idea of the citizenry. But of course, it's a partial thing. You can't have, until the mass of the population are citizens, you can't have real policing by consent. But he set the ball rolling. And that's, you know, the left always talks about, has a tendency to always talk about bourgeois society and think about it as if it's fraudulent, as if it's not real. And it's very real. Your house is very real. You know, if you, if you don't have it, you know it. That's right, because, of course, you can point out all the terrible things that go wrong, miscarriages of justice, tower blocks burning down, all kinds, and, and, you know, dozens, of, hundreds of people being killed. You can always point to awfulness, Aberfan, or you can always point to that. But that doesn't undermine the reality of the, of, uh, the broad reality of, of the rights that we've got. And the, the the forms of life that underpin them, yeah, that very diverse form of of life. And let me just read something from your uh, from your book, Don, because I think it's a really nice, it's really nice, it's very well 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 written. Your book, Don, available on Amazon and all good, <laughs> all good uh, retailers, I'm sure. I'll put a link in the show notes, Don. Yeah. To, yeah. This is where you're talking about the imaginary working class, yeah. and well, what, what I what I wanted to read is about. One of one of the, this quote is, tells you about the diversity of working class experience. I think, and that is again something that you say that we 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 don't understand, or the left doesn't understand. So you say this reminded me of Orwell actually when you talk about his pigeon fanciers. If you yes, remember, yeah. yes. <laughs> when I read that word Orwell, I was like, what's a pigeon fancier? <laughs> so I had to look it up. Yeah, um, but okay. So you say. Between these extremes, so that's the extremes of, uh, so there are pockets of ignorance, fecklessness and disorganisation at one end of the working class and high levels of skill, intellectual and cultural sophistication at the other end. Between these extremes, there is something, there is everything from people engaging in amateur theatre groups to respectable older folk in blazers, bowling on well-kept greens, gardening or home improvement are significant endeavours. There are avid viewers and listeners to public service broadcasting, BBC Radio 4, and those who never switch over from Radio 1 or their local music station. Millions tirelessly work for charities, for their church, for their synagogue, or mosque, fundraising, staffing food banks, crewing lifeboats, singing in choirs, or spending precious hours rehearsing with the local brass band. There are those who enjoy the black tie functions, uproarious hit nights, trips to concerts of classical music, Broadway and West End musicals, or spend their weekends playing guitar in rock bands, or excelling in gaming on computers, or esports as it's now known as, yeah. I've even met a, <laughs> I've even met a working class dressage champion whose work, whose day job was nursing the mentally ill. What a remarkable fellow he was, yeah. <laughs> but I suppose the, uh, all of that, right, tells me something, that tons of, that, that diversity of experience, Don, all of those different forms of life, all of those different activities, all of those different interests, they denote a pragmatism, I think. I'm not sure if you think you think that, but those working people are natural pragmatists. They're autodidacts, and since they learned how to be the dressage champion, some of them have formal experience, no doubt. But that is something which characterises working people. 
And that's why they don't like the left, because the left are all full of pipe dreams and utopianism. Do you think that's fair? Well, it's partly, partly true. I wouldn't describe it as pragmatism. I would describe it as life and life interests uh, <laughs> that people get interested in particular things. They may hate, hate their bloody job. But actually joining the, the, the club that re- restores steam engines is the greatest thing since life bread as far as they're concerned uh, or whatever whatever it is this springs in my mind from the the the, the ludicrous slogan that, that appeared some years ago about the one percent versus the 99 percent this idea that society was divided between one percent of the super rich and 99 percent of people who weren't super rich the tendency to forget that large numbers of uh, working class people you know if you hire a cleaner she's quite likely to drive up to your house in a car <laughs> right, right. blow me down that's right and a lady in my in the corner sh- corner shop the co-op shop that i often go in who's just come back from two weeks in turkey and i said oh that's marvelous i said where are you going next she said oh in november we're going to somewhere in the caribbean i said really you're going to the caribbean she said oh yes she said my boyfriend's got a really good job <laughs> <laughs> and there she is in a nylon overall in the co-op doing this dismal job right and it is a dismal job and she does it with great humor and, and, and engagement with the customers and all that and that's the other thing is that people might hate their jobs but they lots of people that you meet face to face with the with the public have extraordinary forbearance and good humor and and that's astonishing really when you think about how does that work and it obviously works on the basis that they can't live on the basis that their their job is miserable and hateful and everything they're going to make the best of it they're going to make the best of it whatever it happens to be and and I don't think that's pragmatism. I just think, I think that's people living a life and trying to make make out in whatever's been given to them. Do, uh, deal with the hand that they're dealt. Whatever the hand is dealt. Yeah, that's right. And people cope. And they also cope with all sorts of things. I mean, I remember talking to some youngsters who were talking about revolutions and all the rest of it. And I said, what would all the all the carers do? They said, what What do you mean? I said, well, you know, the million or so people that look after the aged and infirm, <laughs> all the rest of it. If the supermarket was suddenly empty of food, what would, how would they cope? I mean, you have to think about this. With great difficulty, I would imagine. <laughs> you have to think about this, how society actually functions, you know, when you're making proposals. You know, most people do not want a revolution, you know. <laughs> so going around saying we're revolutionaries, this is not this is not a, a, a good thing as far as most people are concerned. It's very disruptive revolutions. <laughs> it will indeed. But the but the truth of the matter is that that uh the, the revolutions that we conceive of uh, in the past. I mean, we've all been gripped by Lenin and the Bolsheviks, I think, in the misunderstanding of that, that well, whole event. Well, that was one of the things you mentioned. It's a philosophical concept, and it's the concept of voluntarism. And I think you trace that to the initial Bolshevik revolution, yeah. where it was, you know, was everything was done by, became done by state bureaucracy and bureaucratization. Now, nobody likes bureaucracy, except bureaucrats, perhaps. But the interesting, the interesting thing about Lenin, for instance, and the, and the and the Bolshevik Party in generally, they they knew that the peasants believed in the private ownership of land. They knew that ninety percent of the population didn't agree with them, and yet they still seized power, right? <laughs> because they thought it'd be all right on the night, and of course it wasn't all right on the night. Even the industrial workers that had largely participated in the overthrow of the existing centres of power of, of Tsarism. Even the industrial workers ended up very, very quickly not not agreeing with them because a lot of the workers understood workers' control as a kind of syndicalism. They thought they would really actually control their factories. That wasn't the Bolshevik idea at all. It wasn't a syndicalist idea. And so they rose in rebellion against uh, against the Bolshevik regime. So the, the Bolsheviks had to engage in all sorts of struggles to suppress both the working class and particularly the, the peasantry. Because the majority of people in 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 Russia were uh, were peasants, uh, and the peasants weren't an undifferentiated class by any means. There was the the peasant with five cows and 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 three hefty healthy sons who who were 
really able. And then there was a person who's a poor widow who's got one cow and no sons. Right. So people have fantastically different circumstances in the Russian village. And of course, naturally, the most successful farmers um, were at the head of the village committee and the village, you know, and when the revolution broke out in February, they seized the land. The Bolsheviks didn't seize the land. The peasants seized the land for themselves. Right. And and the Russian Revolution was a real revolution. You know, I mean, they seized the the, lots of them burnt down the manor house or drove the the rich family out and took over the land and divided it up uh, through the village committees or councils or whatever they were. You know, this idea that the Bolsheviks actually brought about this is not true. The the mass of the peasantry took took matters into their own hands. And then, of course, the Bolsheviks come along and take take the land off the peasantry, effectively. Uh, and by the late twenty, by nineteen twenty-eight, it's a disaster. The whole thing. Yes, least in famines and. Yeah, absolutely huge. Yeah. So, uh, in terms of so voluntarism is what I'm saying. Very, you get it on the right, of course. You know, the American uh, the American invasion of Iraq was a fine example of voluntarism gone mad. They thought if they invaded, uh, got rid of the the uh, the Baathist state, closed down the army, that there'd be, you know, capitalism, and uh, uh, a, a democracy would simply emerge. And of course, this is nonsense. It wasn't going to happen. Similarly, the, the voluntarism of the left is the is, is same. The Bolsheviks thought that, that, you know, because they had a thought that they could force it through and, and get what they wanted. They never got what they wanted. It was always a disaster. And every, every regime informed by Bolshevism has been a disaster varying degrees of bloodiness but they've all been disasters uh, and so that whole question of voluntarism seems to me is it doesn't take account of the things that the discrete things that you should attempt to preserve in society and the things that you should get rid of in terms of revolutions it seems to be the case that the revolutions that are most important that the left doesn't pick up on are revolutions that are not uh, sort of the immediate overthrow of governments or seizing of power of those things is technological revolutions well there's a, there's all that as well but the political revolutions are important they left never talked about the american revolution the american revolution is a brilliant revolution it's very successful it's an extraordinary uh, development in the world before the, the the french revolution the french revolution was a disaster the the left loves the french revolution good burkean pint there don yeah the French Revolution was a complete disaster. You know, you can see that because n- no form of of stable bourgeois rule was instituted until uh, until the Prussians suppressed the Paris Commune in eighteen seventy one. Right, so uh, it was almost a century of of disorder and chaos. Uh, but the the American Revolution was a success. Now, of course, immediately people will leap to the to the question of slavery, quite rightly. But it doesn't undermine the success of the revolution, of the American Revolution, or its nature. It informs its nature, but it was a successful revolution in an extraordinary extent. And, you know, the revolution in England in, in 1688, where um, William and Mary were brought in as a, as a joint monarchy. This was a fantastically successful revolution because it actually, there were bills of, I forget what they were called, there were two bills of rights, which stipulated what the monarch could and could not do and uh, asserted the supremacy of parliament, which we have to this day. The English Revolution, they don't like the, the left never likes the idea of the English Revolution because they think it was partial. But of course, it was fantastically successful. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they killed the king, <laughs> killed the monarch. I know there was well, they, a restoration, they, obviously. That, but well, That's right. They killed the king in the middle of the 17th century. But uh, and that that laid the groundwork to the, the glorious revolution of 1688. Uh, Marx makes a very funny joke about uh, how following the, the establishment of the Bank of England and so on, uh, surprisingly, they didn't re- refer. They didn't name the the national debt, the royal debt. He said every 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 institution is always called royal, except the national debt. <laughs> <laughs> the ro- I feel like that's kind of catchy. The royal debt. 
<laughs> which is very funny. But uh, the truth of the matter is that the establishment of uh, 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 parliamentary elections uh, in the early part of the 18th century uh, and so on and so forth is uh, the groundwork of a, a society governed by law. So the the institution the institution of uh, the rule of law, it emerges in the 18th century. And incidentally, r- results because of the fear of, uh, of hell, really. There's a terrible fear that slavery will result in the, in the, the British nation being cast into perdition. So there's a moral horror of slavery. And also the rebellions in, in the Caribbean, particularly in Haiti, brings an end to the institution of the British they banned the slave trade, which was no mean thing to do in the early early 19th century because they had the British Navy, which was a vast uh, and very effective force. And then they abolished slavery itself in, uh, uh, in the 1830s. But the left will go on tirelessly about how they paid compensation to the slave owners. <laughs> this, is the, this is the focus, yeah. not the fact they actually did it. <laughs> and so... Uh, there's always this negative view. Whereas the positive, well, I would always say, even to an Irishman, there's the there's the there's the Cromwell of the of of the the, the English Revolution, and then there's the Cromwell of Drogheda and the massacres. There's the Cromwell of seizing Jamaica as a colony, and the the Cromwell of uh, ab- abolishing the monarchy. There there are all dualist elements in this there's always one thing and another uh throughout english history uh and so uh the left doesn't want to recognize that they want to recognize one side not the other yes it's it's and you know i I have to put in the major caveat that cromwell was a complete nutter bastard (laughs) (laughs) before i go ahead Uh, but he liked a good dance, you know. Yeah, he wasn't as miserable as everybody make him no, out to no, be. Yeah, that's right. He liked a good dance. The the the, the point being, I suppose, <laughs> Don, <laughs> might get excommunicated over this. Don, I have to be I have to tread carefully. Um, I suppose. Yeah, the the they don't like wins. The abolishment of slavery in England is a massive progressive win. That you know, even if it's not universal or it needs to be worked out I mean if you're an American you'd probably say it's not really worked out until the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s serfdom yes yeah, yeah. Yeah. or serfdom yep it's what I call the uh, what happened after the civil war the, the blacks were reduced to a kind of serfdom absolutely yeah one of the interesting things in the book that I read was your depiction of uh, containerization. So you know, about the the shipping, mm. uh, the innovations in containerization. Well, it's not just intervention in containerization, but containerization, uh, navigation, the move away from the traditional dock labor. Dock labor, precisely, precisely. That's what I'm I'm driving on. Containerization bespeaks this very complex global uh, globalized mm. world and. I'm not so much interested in that specific case study, but you can talk about it if you like. I'm interested in the uh, the adoption of technology. And traditionally, the left tends to be okay with technological innovation, I think. You know, it's usually it's folk on the right who are, you know, anti-modern or see technology. You know, you did hear Tolkien's of the world, I suppose, who see the world as, who see technology as in some sense corrupting some kind of natural, organic society. And I think on the left, perhaps there is... Some technological scepticism, you see it in probably some type of Luddism can emerge where people are like, oh, if, if a job, com- if a machine comes along, it's going to take away some jobs. Well, yeah, we, it, 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 it's very common, actually, I think. I think the left does have a problem with technology because when containerization came along, the left spent several years fighting at containerization. In fact, it got, got to such absurd degrees that when, uh, when uh, a container would arrive at a port, in the early days of the fight, they would insist on on unpacking the, the container so it could be repacked with with unionized dock labor. So this was a, a complete laddism, complete struggle against uh, against this innovation. And when you think of containerization, it's not that technical; it's just a box. Uh, but the advantage of it was that it could be standardized, could be loaded onto trains and onto truck bodies, and so on. And could be packed anywhere away from from the the, the trade unions and the 
dockside and so on. But it's manifestly, you know, the the traditional form of of mixed cargoes with nets of things and crates and men having a hook, a steel hook that they held over their shoulders to grab goods and so on. This was obviously uh, uh, an inefficient system. So containerization swept the board. And despite ruthless battles and trade unions and strikes and across the world the working workers dock workers were defeated by containerization and the same same thing happened in printing with digitalization so the left has historically had a number of problems with technology and to this day the train driver must not open the doors the guard must open the doors on the train even though the technology has changed and so on uh, or the ticket collectors should stay behind their glass panels as ticket collectors when nobody wants them there because nobody buys tickets, hardly anyone buys tickets anyway. I can really sympathise with that because what you're talking about there is the loss of jobs and that's a loss of jobs is a loss of livelihood and of course, money yeah. and that's yeah. that feeds into people's kids going to schools yeah, and yeah, all the rest of absolutely. all these things. Yeah, yeah. But there's an inevitableism to that, isn't there? There is. There is. And as far as I'm concerned, for instance, if you think about the ticket sales, I would, if I was a trade unionist or whatever, I would struggle to insist that no jobs are lost, that people should be platform staff, they should have nice uniforms and help the customers, and there, there should be more presence of staff in the tube station so that it's not threatening, particularly for young women, but it's not for anybody. So it's not threatening, it's safer and all the rest of it. And so the the emphasis should be not on trying to hang on to, to uh, booking hall staff, but to actually embrace the idea that this technology has done away with the need for booking all staff. What we really need is loads of people there, uh, uh, safety, looking after, helping elderly people onto escalators or whatever it is. We want more staff uh, around and consequently on the train. Of course, there should be people on the train to look after you uh, and all that. But the at the at the moment the the guard runs up and down the train selling tickets and all the rest of it, and opening and shut the doors when he can. But constantly, uh, the unions are are in fights with these these changes that are brought about by technology, uh, but not in a creative way. They're they're constantly retaining, want to retain. Stuff. Also, a subject you talk about in the book with relation to the directly related. I'm talking about the issue of gentrification. Yeah, oh yes, yeah, yeah, and well, the term itself is. It's hilarious. <laughs> Aristocratic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the landed gentry are coming in and <laughs> disrupting local communities because it's, I suppose it's not a technological question. All those technological issues, because I suppose the question then is, I mean, there, there is going to be a kind of a sacrifice there, though, isn't there? If gentrification is a thing. It's what is gentrification? As I understand it, it's gentrification is, is, is the, it's the creation of high-rent high neighbourhoods. Which can be disruptive to local communities often. Or can be. And the, the, the tendency on the left, and certainly on the anarchist left, but certainly on the left more broadly, is to blame the, 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 the incoming tenants, i.e. the gentry, people who live there, instead of uh, focusing on the question of land policy, property developers, what price is it going to be charged for anything? I mean, I live in a high-rent district in the middle of the city in Manchester, and clearly the council, in cahoots with property developers, has created the entire centre of Manchester as a high-rent district. Mostly the working class hasn't been driven out because the working class never lived in the middle of Manchester anyway. But nevertheless, it creates a, a situation where only people who've got good jobs can live there, mostly younger younger people who can share rent and so on, but also people who've got good jobs can live in a particular neighbourhood and they want all the things that go with having good jobs. They want good delicatessens, nice cafes, nice bars and all that. It becomes a focal point for the entire city then. People who can't afford to live there want to go there because it's a resort then. But the heart of a question, because you, you, and I think these are pretty crude criticisms of Marx, the idea is that you often hear this from people on the right who criticise uh, leftist or leftist rhetoric or leftist political ideas. So I thought, uh, uh, whatever you think of, uh, say, Mick Lynch, who's um, in Britain, <laughs> for the, uh, another true like son of Aaron. They don't like his accent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really all. Yeah, well, I think he was he was on he was on being interviewed recently with Richard Madeley, I think. So for listeners who are not from Britain, Richard Madeley is 
he does a kind of a morning TV show and the first thing he said was you're a Marxist so you believe in the overthrow of the state and you believe in nobody owns nothing <laughs> and I think he responded like well don't be talking to Adel basically you know yeah. but there is that view out there of Marxism and it gets to think uh, it gets to the heart of this doc, this discussion we're having about the question of gentrification I think because it's about property again you know that's the idea that in Marxism or Marx that the idea is that there should be an abolition of property and everything is well, held in common. But that's not necessarily the case, is it? It's not the case. Um, Marx made a joke of, about women being held in common as well. He was he was making a joke about that in the 19th century. But truth of the matter is what we're talking about is the market. Can the market deliver good housing? Can the market deliver good education for working class children? Can the market develop, de- provide uh, excellent uh, uh, health insurance? The answer is no. That's why we have the NHS. Health insurance cannot be delivered at a profit uh, uh, by the market. That's why we have the NHS. Housing cannot be delivered effectively. A, lot, a third of the population are never going to be able to buy their own house anyway. So they have to rent at least a third. They, they have to rent. Can't allow it leave it to the market if you leave it to the market you have the planet of slums that we've got now vast numbers of people live in the most miserable conditions because of the market in housing in different countries in different regions of the world and so on and also in britain so large numbers of people have rent flats where the 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 electricity is dodgy the wiring is 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 disastrously dangerous Etc. Uh, Etc. Et They've got damp coming in and all the, all this business uh, uh, because the landlords don't have enough money. The private landlords don't have enough money to put it right, and so they shouldn't be in the business. They shouldn't be there. Should be driven out of the of the market. And the only people who can drive those buggers out of the market is the state or the local authority. My view is that the uh, Private rental accommodation should be is fine, but the rent should be determined by the local authority on area by area, and the landlord should be unable to do a no uh, fault eviction. So as long as the tenant is is obeying the uh, the contract uh, in every respect, then you should not be able to evict him. And if the only grounds in which the the private landlord should be able to evict is is if they have got a proven need to live in the property themselves then they should be able to evict but under no circumstances so that would mean that nobody would be able to sell uh, properties with vacant possession etc etc well that would be okay because it applied to everybody but it would result in large amounts of private capital leaving the, 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 the area. And so the state would have to step in and provide that. So as long as there is a housing market, there's going to be uh, uh, villages in on the coast, picturesque villages on the coast, completely occupied by second homers on the one hand, or slums in, 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 in city centres uh, or in inner suburbs or whatever unless the state intervenes. So that's what I think. It's the, the market is the problem. And the state tends not to want to annoy rich property owners. It's not necessarily by, by capitalism. I mean, in New York, they still have rent control. So it's, it's, not, it's not a problem. I mean, you, you could have... It capitalism. can be done. Yeah, it can be done within capitalism to have rent control and a proper regulation. Of- so what's the proper role of the state then for you? As you, as someone who's been a leftist all your life, I know if you still call yourself that, you certainly still call yourself a communist, not a leftist. I think that'd be fair. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, but the, you know, what is the extent to which the state should intervene? Is, or is that something you've thought about? Uh, you know, I mean, that's the John Stuart Mill idea philosophically, isn't it? That the state should be restricted from impinging on uh, individual liberty. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a there's a lot and I haven't done the thinking, but there needs to be a lot of thinking among socialists and communists and people on the left generally. We need to think about ungoverned spaces. What, you know, if we were, if we had a socialist state, what things wouldn't it do? 
don't let's think about what it would do. Let's think about what it shouldn't do. Yeah, so like arrest homosexuals and cart them into prison, for example. Well, I wasn't even thinking at that level. I was thinking at the, the, the level of, you know, who can have pets and who can't have pets. That's got nothing. That should be nothing to do with the state. It shouldn't be anything to do with the state. All sorts of things, you know, people's what we call private life now where it's got nothing to do with the state etc etc so there's all sorts of ungoverned spaces uh in capitalist society which should be preserved as ungoverned spaces and that's one that people people fear uh the socialists because everything becomes public yeah because of course if you abolish capitalism and you institute a a socialist setup, then what you've actually done is you've made every economic decision a political decision. That's that's effectively what you've done. So if you make every decision a political decision as to how you invest here or there or wherever, then it's a problem because you then create uh, 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 the state control of of job choice. That also introduces bureaucracy, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you you have to, you know, somebody wants to be, you know, a rock musician. Well, what's what's the basis? In, under capitalism, you can live on the dole and be a rock musician and you can make your way and you can talk to a number of publicans and see if you can get a chance playing in their pub. <laughs> it's an ungoverned space as far as the state's concerned. I know there's licensing laws for, for music and God knows what, but that's not the, the, the issue. The issue is it's essentially an ungoverned space. So what we're doing now is a bit of an ungoverned state. What the internet has done and is, technology is democratised broadcasting effectively yeah. you know the state cannot uh, intervene no. you would say in what we're doing now and say come along go actually no the internet could not have been developed in, by the, in the Soviet Union it could not have happened it could not have happened in China or anywhere else it can only be developed it's a product of of capitalist society and the ungoverned spaces which is very interesting because the political right always says that the relationship between capitalism and private property is essential for freedom that's, you know, the road to serfdom and all, all these people will we'll all argue this. And, and of course, they've got a point that I don't, I don't agree with them, but they, they've got a point. And the point, and this is the point, how do you create a situation where people are free? And unless socialists and communists are able to demonstrate that we create, we can create a world where people are free, at least as free as they are in bourgeois society, as well as being in charge of the economy and so on, uh, then we're on a hiding to nothing. That's interesting to me because you you introduced the idea of the right and it's quite often in leftist discourse we forget the question of freedom, I think, or the value of freedom. I mean, I think it is in Marx because, I mean, Marx is a theory of freedom. That's no true, but we read, uh, most people on the left have been reading their Marx through the veil of Lenin and, and Lenin was a, a tyrant, of course ruling by decree. He was a dictator, you know, uh, along with the rest of his comrades. The the truth of the matter is that in 1922, von Mises wrote a book called Socialism, in which he was was arguing that socialism would be impossible because without the market, you would never know what to produce, never know, be able to determine prices and so on. And he was looking at the... 1922 was the year that the Soviet Union was created as well. But Hayek was looking at the at the revolutionary state in Russia as well. It's interesting that the left has never, you know, von Mises is not on everybody's lips. It's not, it's not, it's not, not, not worth discussing or Hayek or any of these people. But they do raise, a, they raise a series of problems that we need to be able to answer if we're going to get anywhere. I don't think we can answer them. You finished the book talking about what you call the future of communism. And I think in that... You're, you're you're modest. You're saying, you know, if you want to be called a communist, it's very difficult given uh, the history of uh, yeah. how it's been implemented, shall we yeah. say. But the last time you were on the podcast, and I'll put a link in the show notes as well, you spoke about your optimism. You know, you, you your faith in people, your belief in people, your belief in uh, democracy and the ability of working people to sort it out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Right? Do you still feel that way? Yeah. Still, that's good. <laughs> Yes, certainly I do. But firstly, I think that the, the powers that be, the capitalist class or whatever, are not unadulterated bastards. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Uh, but they're, 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 
some of them are capable of rational judgment and, and, and rational policies and so on. And similarly, I think that the mass of, of, of working people are perfectly capable of, of uh, resolving matters uh, in their own hands. But they, it would not look like the traditional idea of the workers seizing control and so on. It would not look like Barcelona 1936. It's not going to look like that. But it, it is going to be created by uh, working people uh, insisting on certain things, as they've done over the years without much hoo-ha. But they've insisted on having better contracts of employment and so on. In situation, working situations that are really wretched, the recruitment consultants call it churn <laughs> right? so working people think that fuck this job we're off right? they, they leave it uh, and there's constant turnover of staff so if you want to stabilize your your workforce you have to improve conditions and that's an inevitable yeah it's necessary shall we say it's necessary it's, it's part of part of what goes on so you're not at all anxious about as a lot of leftists are i think about things like i don't know the war in the ukraine environmental issues technological disruption yeah i'm anxious about all of those things and it seems to me there's an awful lot that can go wrong but overarching in terms of of the uh climate crisis it seems to me that even if nothing else happens, there have to there has to be disasters before the capitalist class will take it seriously, right? Because okay. on the whole, they're buggers, right? So things have to start deteriorating quite rapidly before their eyes, before they realise it's necessary to do something about it. And I think we've reached we're reaching that point now with Pakistan underwater, et cetera, et cetera. We're reaching that point where it becomes unarguable that they've got to do something about uh, about global warming and uh, about they've got to uh, increase the robustness of the of the economies and so on in relation to changes and so on. And you think we'll sort it? I think, I think that they're perfectly capable of sorting it, yeah. And I think that the war in Ukraine could be disastrous. We could be defeated. On the other hand, I think that they've got every chance of winning. It's in the lap of the gods where, and, the, and, the, and the Pentagon, whether they're able to get enough resources to, to beat the Russians. But it seems necessary to me that the, 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 the Ukraine wins the war. The democracy wins the war against the dictatorship, right? That's necessary, uh, and it's necessary for, for Taiwan. It's necessary for the standoff with, with China and so on. Democratic forces need to prevail. Absolutely, yeah, of course they do. But you're not a man of peace, Don. <laughs> no, no, certainly not. <laughs> Shall we end there? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> okay, I'll stop there, Don. Thank you. Thank you very much, Don. You're welcome. 